This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. By uh, an odd series of coincidences, um, as this show is airing, at least on KDVS, Yours truly is probably somewhere south of the border. And I certainly hope uh, not being taken prisoner by any of the drug lords in Sinaloa or anywhere else. I'm on the fence about that. (laughs) The U.S. has always been very lucky uh, as regards the fact that one of the greatest tourist locations anywhere in the world is Mexico, just south of our border. And I hope on next week's program I'll be able to relate some interesting stories about what's going on down there. What's going on down there for me was scouting out a good place to see the eclipse in 2024. We've been big cheerleaders for uh, checking out one of nature's greatest spectacles, although um, I'm wondering why, because as it becomes more and more popular to visit uh, locations having eclipses, it becomes... uh, Hard to find accommodations, hard to find transportation, and hard to find those little glasses that protect your eyes. So always make sure you bring a set of your own when you go. One guest we may want to bring on sometime in the next 13 months or so would be Fred Espinak, who used to work at the Goddard Flight Center. Fred Espinak is kind of, well, he's just Mr. Eclipse. He does the math, figures out exactly where you need to be, and... um, would be a great guy to talk to. I know I know he's available uh, to talk to groups, and we're a group. Let's see what we can do. As we're backing into this topic of eclipse chasing, uh, we must note with some sadness an obituary from last December, which we never got around to, which is that of Jay Pasichoff. Dr. Pasichoff was a solar astronomer and a passionate proselytizer of checking out eclipses. I'm looking at his obituary from The Economist, where he's holding up suitable eye protection, looking up. According to the magazine, he observed 75 eclipses. Of course, that includes partials, which really shouldn't count. Now, annulars and totals, I'll, I'll give him full credit for those. Apparently, he ranked second in the world of, of eclipse chasing. For 50 years, he served as professor of astronomy at Williams College in Massachusetts and director of its Hopkins Observatory. Anyway, I'll give a passage off credit for, uh, for, for trying to popularize these spectacles. Um, I, I, I know where he's coming from, and I think he did the right thing. The economist mentioned something that, that happened to me that I had to laugh about. Uh, apparently, when Pasichoff was up in Manitoba once during an eclipse, he watched in disbelief as drivers simply turned on their headlights but did not stop to observe what was going on. Yours truly witnessed the exact same phenomenon in Siberia. In the middle of the eclipse, cars were driving down the road, turned their lights on, didn't bother to even stop, which caused me to yell at them, much to the amusement of my Russian companions. Yes, Mr. I was yelling in English, so if I'd swore at them in Russian, it would have had a better effect. I don't know. You could have said niet. Well, I said niet in many ways. It's just that I didn't realize that apparently in the 2017 eclipse, which Mr. Millen and I traveled up to Oregon to view, 88% of adult Americans watched it either in person or electronically, which was almost twice as many who had watched the Super Bowl earlier that year. Which is fair enough. It was way better than a Super Bowl. 
Yes, even if the Niners were playing. Anyway, apparently he was uh, doing his part to promote the 2024 eclipse. He'd reserved a hotel reservation in Sinaloa, but unfortunately has left us and will not be there. But I guess we can sort of take where Jay Passageoff left off and see what we can do to promote your travel to see this. Not everyone's going to be able to go to Mexico, of course. And everybody should not go to Mexico, as a matter of fact. But uh, this, there's going to be a, a broad swath across the United States with plenty of viewing opportunities. So it's about time to go visit those Illinois relatives. You know, I do want to talk just a little more quasi-astronomy here in a moment. But first, I want to, I want to acknowledge uh, the fact that we've had an uptick in the number of people writing into us at info at radioparallax.com. We encourage this. Cheryl wrote to tell us how much she enjoyed uh, our talk with Howard McKinney on last week's show. And... The good news is we're going to have Howard on again on this week's show in our second half today. What exactly are we going to talk about at this juncture? I'm, I'm not sure, but I know it's going to turn out just fine. Our guest, after all, does have a gift of gab. And uh, Frequent Radio Parallax guest um, Stephen Harper wrote to tell us that he's got a new article out, which we were keen to talk with him about. Uh, it focuses in on Cash Patel, the GOP operative who's been up to all kinds of nefarious things. We probably need to point out to Stephen Harper that uh, Greg Palast was all over Cash Patel when we spoke to him uh, a year or so ago. Hope maybe we can get those two gentlemen together, put their heads together and see what good can come of it. In answer to your question, uh, longtime listener Bruce, as to whether the Pueblos in the southwest part of the United States should be considered cities as opposed to St. Augustine, Florida, well, you're probably right. Whatever those uh, those those cities were in uh, the dry southwest, I'm sure they, they beat the heck out of uh, the early years of St. Augustine, which is kind of a little, you know, collection of shacks in a swamp. Of course, when you read accounts of what, what, what happened when the Spaniards arrived at Tenochtitlan, the capital of Mexico, uh, they, were, they were dumbfounded at the size of the city. But uh, back to astronomy. One of our regular contributors on this program, I know, is something of an aficionado of, well, UFOs, I guess is the term. As far as we can see, he, he takes them seriously. I thought of this when I stumbled upon another in the, the long series of fake saucer photos. There's one that's currently in circulation showing what looks to be a ceiling fan that somebody tossed over a cornfield and took a photo. I mean... Whatever it is, it's obviously like 18 inches across. You can sort of guesstimate this from the size of the sunlight glinting off the edge of the object. If this thing were the size of a house, the glint of the sunlight would be relatively small versus the entire object. Anyway, this did remind me of a couple things. One, (laughs) another friend of mine who was talking about uh, ancient civilizations and taking it very seriously that there had been, you know, civilizations like, I don't know, 100,000 years ago. And I can't say whether this is from watching, you know, alien civilization type programs that appear on the History Channel, much to the disgrace of the History Channel. But, you know, people just can't seem to get enough of this stuff. No matter how obviously bogus it is. This leads me to uh, chapter 24 of the book, Is Anyone There?, by Isaac Asimov. He wrote this one short chapter especially for the book because it's a collection of his musings on um, matters related to science. 
he wrote some articles in the 1960s looking forward 50 years in time, which is, which is quite fascinating. Although I don't think we'll have time to talk about that today. But I, I cannot resist reading probably the entirety of his essay titled On Flying Saucers. And just the title alone reminds me of that moment which Mr. McGillan and I found so amusing many years back when David Letterman offered up a list of things that might serve as great conversation starters when you sit next to somebody on a long-distance bus ride. Hands down, our personal favorite was, Do you like flying saucers? Said the illustrious Isaac Asimov, Because I frequently indulge in speculations concerning the possibility of extraterrestrial life, and because I am known to be a science fiction writer, I am frequently asked if I, quote, believe, unquote, in flying saucers. The clear expectation of the individual asking the question is that, of course I do. And by, quote, believing, unquote, in flying saucers, the question usually means considering them to be space vehicles operated by non-human intelligences. Well, let me make my position clear since I don't want my writings to be used as a basis for a point of view that I consider folly. I don't believe in flying saucers in the sense of considering them to be space vehicles guided by extraterrestrials. As I explained in the previous chapters of this book, there's virtually no likelihood of intelligent life elsewhere in the solar system, and the nearest samples of life capable of handling spaceships must occur many light years away. To say that intelligent life undoubtedly exists somewhere in the depths of space, as I firmly believe, is not at all the same thing as saying that these forms of intelligent life are visiting us in great swarms in spaceships, disguised as flying saucers, which are continually being sighted, but which never make indisputable contact. The energy requirements for interstellar travel are so great It is inconceivable to me that any creatures piloting their ships across the vast depths of space would do so only in order to play games with us over a period of decades. If they want to make contact, they would make contact. If not, they would save their energy and go elsewhere. Undoubtedly, there are many sincere people who cite perfectly legitimate and unusual phenomenon. These may not be spaceships. In fact, I'm sure they are not. But there are many things other than spaceships that deserve investigation. Undoubtedly also, scientists would react with more enthusiasm and investigate with greater energy if past experience had not told them that the history of the flying saucer rage is full of hoaxes and frauds and error. That is not their fault, you know. Therefore, without casting any aspersions on anyone, I must maintain that until an actual spaceship with its non-human crew is exhibited in the metal and flesh, lights in the sky, however mysterious, are not enough, I will continue to assume that every reported sighting is either a hoax, a mistake, or something that can be explained in a fashion that does not involve spaceships from the distant stars. Uh, Well said, Dr. Asimov. When I was a boy, I was quite interested in in flying saucers because, well, there was was much talk of it uh, back in in the late 60s. But as time went on, I realized it was just a bunch of BS. But what amazes me looking back at it is the sort of of true, truly crazy nonsense that was believed. 
Remember, there was a, a man named George Adamski who claimed that he was taken aboard various flying saucers and all, for one case, flown to Venus. I believe that Venus was a, was a kind of an earthly paradise with lots of clouds and vegetation. And, and I'm, I'm not sure about, about the hot girls, a la Zsa, Zsa Gabor in Queen of Outer Space, a movie that is, is, is so bad it's, it's hilarious. But anyway, people believed, you know, when George Adamski told them, yeah, I swear to God, they took me to Mars, took me to Venus. God, it was great. Anyway, I guess if I ever get in a long-distance bus and somebody plops down next to me and asks, do you like flying saucers? I'm going to answer with an enthusiastic, yes, I do. But I don't think of them in the same way that you do. This topic is probably worthy of a whole show one day. I mean, it all started in 1947 when a man up in near Mount Rainier in Washington, (laughs) saw what he took to be objects 30 feet across from 20 miles away, which is a problem to start with because you can't see something 30 feet across from 20 miles away. Anyway, he he thought he perceived something sort of shiny moving through, and his description of it is what led to all of this. And it's just an example of what, you know, a well-turned phrase can do. The man, I think his name was Kenneth Arnold, said that these objects flew like a saucer skipped across water. The makers of headlines <laughs> then began to use the term flying saucers. And ladies and gentlemen, the world has never been quite the same since. Anyway, as regards this topic, I'm just going to add Klautu, Berada Nikto, and, and move right along. Right now in California, as we speak, they're talking about another atmospheric river. And I, and I think that the, the, the headline writers, once again, have latched on this phrase, atmospheric river. They really like that phrase, atmospheric river. And, and doggone it, they just can't stop using it. To make a long story short, a lot of rain is apparently going to come our way. And, and California, after suffering from you know a very bad drought for a very long time, desperately needs the water. So this is all good. Although when the deluge ends, as it surely will, we'll get back to talking about how it is we need to get drinking water from the sea in California because God knows we're not gonna we're not gonna stop growing. We're not gonna stop putting houses out in the desert, growing monsoon crops out in the desert. No, that would be foolish. When Asimov was looking forward from the 1960s, a half century in the future, he he felt pretty certain that something like half of the world's energy needs by by then, by the year, say, 2014, would come from nuclear power. And, well, let's just say that that's fallen a bit short. Although I believe in America, we still get something like 20% of our power from nukes. The French, of course, get something like 80-85%. And a lot of nuclear activists are going to be upset about the fact that in California, they've decided that the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant can stay open past 2025. The long-planned closure of the facility was disrupted after California experienced a few power crises. Now, if we had nuclear power, and lots of it, it probably wouldn't be such a big deal to desalinate the oceans and, um, and get our drinking water from, from the sea. But right now, the Arab states bordering the Persian Gulf, which almost, which have almost unlimited energy supplies, being they're sitting on top of the world's great oil fields, they do quite a bit of this. I think this is worth a few quotes from a briefing section from The Week, which came from the February 17th issue on this topic. To the question, how does desalination work, the magazine said there are two kinds of desalination. In the Middle East, which produces almost half 
the globe's desalinated water. Plants use thermal desalination, in which heat creates water vapor that condenses into fresh water. But about 60% of the world's desalination plants use membrane desalination, also known as reverse osmosis. In this process, salt is filtered out of the saline water when it's pushed through semi-permeable membranes with tiny pores. In discussing desert nations, they note that desert nations have been relying on desalination for years, with Saudi Arabia housing the world's largest desalination plant, which supplies about half of its drinking water. About 42% of the water in the United Arab Emirates is desalinated, as is about 60% of Qatar's water. In Israel, five plants desalinate water from the Mediterranean, accounting for almost all of the country's tap water. Here in the Western Hemisphere, the largest plant is in San Diego, in Carlsbad. It produces about 10% of the city's drinking water. To the question, what's the catch? The answer was, it's very expensive. Desalination plants require a huge amount of energy. With thermal desalination, energy can account for up to half a plant's total production costs. Reverse osmosis is less energy intensive, but treating water with a high saline content still requires significant energy because water must be mechanically forced through the membranes. And when you know desalination has a major environmental impact, for every liter of drinking water derived, desalination plants produce 1.6 liters of brine, which is released back to the sea. A highly saline product can destroy marine life. Susan Jordan of the California Coastal Protection Network said, desalination advocates think the ocean can sustain the damage, but over 50 years, the ocean cannot sustain the damage. At this point, I feel I need to circle back to something we talked about a few weeks back on the program in the wake of an article about drinking water, which stated that drinking water may help you live longer. I believe we expressed the idea that we weren't, we weren't sure about that, but we were definitely sure that not drinking water would make your life shorter. Anyway, I can't help but be skeptical about the fact that when they checked the sodium levels on various uh, populations of people, they found that uh, uh, those who are in the normal range, 135 to 146 millimoles per liter, did worse when they were on the high end, levels above 142. They were described as more likely to age faster physiologically than those with lower levels, as well as more likely to develop chronic conditions such as heart failure, stroke, lung disease, and diabetes. Those with the highest levels, 144 and above, also had a 21% increased risk of premature death. It was noted that this study does not prove causation, but that they quoted author Natalia Dimitrieva of the National Institutes of Health as saying the results suggest that proper hydration may slow down aging and prolong a disease-free life. Well, maybe so, but I'm pretty sure it has a lot to do with the quality of water you're drinking, but that's a story for another day. One of the standard pieces of advice given to anyone who's engaging in uh, uh, running or, or exercising or uh, you know, walking the dog, I think, is that for God's sakes, you have to remain adequately hydrated. And while it's true that if you're not adequately hydrated, that, that you're dehydrated, <laughs> these people walking along, walking around the block, carrying a water bottle, sometimes two water bottles, one in each hand, just have to make me laugh. And I'm not even going to get into the whole camelback thing. Personally, I have to confess that I think it's probably good to push yourself a little bit and get a little bit on the dry side. Because what on earth, dear listener, is more refreshing than a tall glass of cool water when you're thirsty? Does anything beat that? Wouldn't you agree, Mr. McMillan? Uh, 
up, I'd prefer one ounce of a good single malt. Well, for God's sakes, don't get dehydrated. And speaking of health, uh, uh, the world of health, I think it's fair to say, is all the buzz, as is the world of investing, over the promise that is being held out by some new treatments for obesity. They are being called game changers. They are being called game changers. And considering how fat people are getting, we probably should add not a minute too soon. Why are you looking at me when you say that? <laughs> Just a coincidence. And yes, once again, I'm going to rely on one of our favorites, the briefing section. This is from the week from uh, February 24th. To the question, what's the excitement about? The magazine answered, for decades, research has chased a drug that could significantly reduce weight without dangerous side effects. Now they say that moment has arrived. A pair of drugs, Ozempic and Wegovy, different formulations of the compound semiglutide, have shown stunning effectiveness in helping people lose weight by suppressing their appetites. In a 15-month study by the manufacturers of the Danish company Novo Nordisk, obese people shed an average of 15% of their body weight, losing an average of 35 pounds each. They also lowered their blood pressure, cholesterol, and inflammation markers. A newer drug, terzepatide, marketed by Eli Lilly under the name Monjaro, has fared even better. In a study, users lost an average of 21% of their body weight. The revolutionary nature of non-invasive treatments that yield results comparable to gastric bypass surgery can't be overstated, says doctors. It is indeed the transformative breakthrough it indeed is the transformative breakthrough, said Matthias Schopp, a German physician and obesity researcher. The market for these drugs, doctors and weight loss specialists agree, will be massive. They note that tens of millions of people, 40% of Americans, are obese, while another 30% have enough excess weight to elevate the risks for heart disease, cancer, and osteoarthritis. Morgan Stanley, that fine medical institution, predicts that blockbuster global sales of the new drugs will surpass $50 billion by 2030. Soaring demand for the drug has already led to shortages, driven in part by an explosion of enthusiastic social media chatter. The hashtag pound Ozempic has generated more than 700 million views on TikTok. So far, only Wagovi has gotten FDA approval for treating obesity. Ozempic and Monjaro are currently approved only for treating diabetes, but are being widely prescribed off-label for weight loss. The story here is that these drugs are taken weekly in self-administered injections through a pre-filled pen like those used for insulin. In the body, the drugs mimic hormones naturally produced in the intestines that regulate blood sugar and hunger. Semaglutide mimics a hormone called GLP-1, while tirzepatide impersonates that and a second hormone, GIP. By sending signals of satiety to brain receptors that govern appetite, they give people a feeling of fullness after small meals and can make once torturous cravings vanish. They quoted a Rachel Graham, 54-year-old woman from Carlsbad, California, who lost 40 pounds on Monjaro after years of failed diets, is saying, it used to be that if I saw food, I would want to eat it. Now I have three or four bites. I don't want to eat more. Are there downsides? Well, there's always downsides to medication, ladies and gentlemen. The possible side effects here include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and a racing heartbeat. And boy, you don't want all those at once. 
Doctors are reporting that these are not common side effects and they do improve with time and with dose adjustments. But those who've had them say they could be debilitating. A lot of people are worried that if a a weekly shot can produce weight loss, people are going to dismiss the need to exercise and improve their diets. Another concern is that the drugs are already being used by people who are not obese, but have seized upon them as an easy way to shed 5 or 10 unwanted pounds. And the news of of these drugs has certainly got them excited over at The Economist. The Economist rightly points out that we need to consider safety first. The newness of these drugs means that their long-term consequences are not yet known. Back when I was a medical resident, we had a very sharp uh, instructor in infectious disease, Tom Fife, great guy. He always pointed out when when a new antibiotic came on the scene, at first it seemed to have a lot fewer side effects than the others until it was used for a longer period of time when it usually turned out that it had its fair share. Another issue out of all of this and the big money grab is that in America, the bill for Wagovi is going to run at about $1,300 a month. For Ozempic, it's going to be about $900. Judged by such prices, lifelong prescriptions look forbiddingly expensive. The longer view, however, is that in time, companies may strike deals with governments and health providers to cover the whole population, ensuring high volumes in return for low prices. Yeah, that could happen. And any day now, I might start dating a bevy of Hollywood starlets. Let's just compare that reality with what's happening with insulin. Eli Lilly has announced that it's slashing prices on insulin by 70%. It's also announced that it's going to expand a program capping out-of-pocket costs at $35 a month. This sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Well, public health reporters Jonathan Lambert, Cameron Hood, and Anna Dean took a look at this. Took a look at how much insulin costs around the world versus the U.S. To note that millions of Americans with diabetes depend on the life-saving drug insulin. But the cost of its four most popular formulations has tripled over the past decade, which makes the drug unaffordable for many people who depend upon it. As many as 1.3 million, or 16.5% of those who use insulin, according to a study published last fall in the Annals of Internal Medicine, have resorted to rationing it which can result in severe or fatal complications. So Eli Lilly is not looking like such nice guys, perhaps when you factor in the fact that no other country comes as close to spending as much on insulin as the U.S. According to the Rand Corporation, did a study in 2018, the average price of insulin in the U.S. was $100 per vial, which is five to ten times more than 33 other countries. The next biggest spender in this, Chile, spent 2148. It's noted that many Americans end up paying much less than this after insurance and other discounts, but prices still remain much higher than elsewhere. Now there are some factors in the in this the, the US relies on newer more expensive forms of insulin and the regulatory environment in some other countries helps keep prices down. For example, countries with single payer systems like the UK and Canada can use their negotiating power to keep prices down too. Speaking of Canada, it was a couple Canadians, Banting and Best, who 100 years ago discovered how insulin worked. They decided to not profit by patenting the drug, and I believe they turned the patent over to a university. My, how things have changed. Evidently, Banting and Best sold their patent for the drug for $1. They declared that insulin belongs to the world. 
to cause the writers to say, well, even with Eli Lilly's recent move, the drug will remain hard to reach for many Americans. Drug pricing policies in this country are a national scandal. They were made worse back in 2005, I think it was, when the Bush administration looked the other way when Congress passed a bill written by Big Pharma for the benefit of Big Pharma. That's something we need to talk to Howard McKinney about. And we will talk to Howard after a short break, so stick around. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.